Last week we were in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and we asked the question, who is this Jesus? Does anybody remember? And so I thought it appropriate that we follow up uh, that question, who is this Jesus, and we, we begin to con- contemplate about this, this issue of following him. So, so this, this weekend we're going to talk about what about following Jesus? What is that all about? And so I picked out two passages that I think are apropos, and we're going to bounce off those passages. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter uh, 4, if you would, please. Verses 18 through 22, we'll read that, and then we'll jump over to Luke chapter 14. So you may want to put your finger in Luke also, chapter 14. Matthew records, and so does Mark and Luke and John, they all have... Uh, accounts, and, and there's slight variation of those accounts from different perspectives, of the calling of the first disciples. And, and so Matthew very simply says, that verse 18 of his gospel, chapter 4, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now, what do you think could possibly have been in the mind and the thoughts uh, of Peter and Andrew and James and John when Jesus said, Come follow me. If you were one of them, would you have some, some things, some questions you'd like to ask, ask Jesus? Would there be some considerations? I think so. Jump over with me to uh, Luke chapter 14. Because we're going to explore some of the potential issues and questions that I'm sure must have been in their minds when he called them to follow him. Now, in Luke 14, beginning at verse 25, we read about the cost of being a disciple. Luke records, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What's he talking about there? Does he talk about really hating your family? No, obviously not. We know that. He uses, Jesus very often teaches in hyperbole, doesn't he? He uses expressions to grab people's attention. And he's talking about the difference between loving him and trusting in him as opposed to loving your family. Your love for him makes your love for your family look almost like hate. You, you, you desire him so much. So he's teaching in hyperbole here. He goes on, he says, And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So there's certain things that if you profess to be a disciple of Jesus Christ must be evident in your life. And we're going to look at those things. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? So he's talking about counting the cost. Or if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will what? Ridicule him saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. In other words, he's a fool. 
Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace, if he's smart, right? In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything uh, he has cannot be my disciple. Is he asking for a stark commitment here? Absolutely. He says in verse 34, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Powerful, powerful stuff here. So when we contemplated last week, we said, who is this Jesus? And the Apostle Paul, in that Colossians passage, so marvelously painted this picture of of Jesus to us, that he is the creator of everything, and he is the sustainer of everything, and everything was created by him and for him, and that he is... Ultimately, in the climax of that passage, the reconciler of all things to himself. So with this kind of Jesus, he comes and he says, follow me. So what about following Jesus? What are we to know? What are we to think? What cost are we to count if, in fact, we are to follow Jesus? What questions would explode in your mind if you were Peter uh, or Andrew or James or John? What questions would come to your mind? What, what issues would concern you about giving up everything? The family business, the family fishing boat, the family nets. What issues would concern you about following Jesus? This is... As we read in Luke's Gospel, this is important because the cost of discipleship, beloved, is enormous. Let me suggest that we don't become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ at our convenience. It's not a convenient thing. It's not kind of a a part-time thing that we do. More and more and more, our life is invested as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is an enormous thing. And we must not take it on without counting the cost. Because if you don't count the cost, and you step forward, and you profess Jesus, and then all of a sudden, all of the the, uh, essential elements of being a disciple begin to come into your life, and the demands are made on you, you're going to fade, you're going to give up, and you're going to be like that person who built a house, or started to build a house, didn't have enough, and faded away. And all of your friends, and all of your family, and all the people you said, oh, I'm a Christian now, they're going to laugh at you. And you're going to be too embarrassed to press on in the faith. That's been my experience with lots of people. Fade away. It's kind of like the, uh, the rocky soil that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 13. It's shallow. There's no depth there for the root to take a deep root and for that plant to flourish. So this is critical stuff. So I want to I run through seven, seven things that, that, that we ought to consider. If we're going to count the cost, if we are truly going to be disciples of the Lord Jesus. And these things are, are, are not necessarily new, but they are certainly worth rehearsing. And maybe for some of you they are new. So it would be worthy of you to uh, 
to take close attention and indeed take notes. Incidentally, I put a lot of effort into the, uh, uh, the Daily Hope this week, so you'll find, it, you'll find it very, very, very helpful along this subject if you actually do the study. So here's the first thing we want to consider. And this is something that many people would consider. When Jesus comes and he says, follow me, maybe you would ask, why would Jesus want me? Why would Jesus call me? With, with all my past, with all my problems, with all my, if I can use this term, baggage. Anybody here have baggage? You know what I'm talking about, baggage? Yeah, all the stuff in her past life. All the, all the attitudes and all the beliefs and all the behavior uh, that we have engaged in and indeed maybe even carried on. All of us have prejudices, don't we? All of us have biases. All of us have perspectives. All of us have been involved in, 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 in some measure of disruptiveness in our own lives, in relationships and so forth. So I want to suggest to you that we all have... Uh, we all have problems from our past. We all have uh, baggage. As far as we know, none of the original 12 uh, disciples uh, came to Jesus with, with anything of real substance and value in their life. You know, uh, Judas Iscariot probably uh, looked the most promising. And, uh, but for the most part, Jesus' candidates for apostles uh, were simple men, they were uneducated men, they were rural men, and no doubt they had baggage from their past also. I want to read to you a, a, a memorandum, uh, and this is written, this is a memorandum to Jesus, son of Joseph, Woodcrafters Shop Nazareth. And this is from the Jordan Management Consultants in Jerusalem. Subject, Staff Aptitude Evaluation. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we've reviewed them with our psychologist and vocational, <laughs> vocational aptitude consultant. It is the opinion of the staff that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude and would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both register a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability, resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contact in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and innovative. We recommended Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. (laughs) All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. (laughs) You can see, just from a humanistic perspective, just from a human perspective... The 12 that Jesus initially recruits don't seem to have much to offer. 
in terms of ability, training. They're rural, uneducated men. So what would Jesus want with them? This is no all-star team he's recruited, you know. Simon Peter, in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, he raises this whole issue of baggage just in his own life when Jesus does this miracle and they catch a huge load of fish, remember? And what is, what is Peter's comment to Jesus in the boat? He, he fell down and he said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a what? Lord, I'm not, I, I'm not worthy of being I just got all this. I'm just a sinner. You see? And then Jesus, Jesus comforts him. His response in verse 10 is, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus has a plan. It's interesting to me that Jesus did very, very little talking about his disciples' backgrounds. You read the gospel accounts, and the writers of the gospels do very, very little in terms of uh, giving visibility about the disciples' past. We might think that we'd hear a lot about Matthew's way of life as a tax collector, and Simon the zealot, his, his association with a political movement that had violent tendencies. But you don't hear that. So whatever baggage the twelve brought with them, Jesus downplayed it. Jesus downplayed it. Indeed, they're all, back, they're all their backgrounds, just like our backgrounds, are buried in what? In redemption, aren't they? They're buried in redemption. Jesus didn't deal with their past. Certainly in public, he didn't. This has, this has got to encourage most all of us. You see, uh, certainly we, most all of us, lack any kind of real spiritual moral resumes that, that are stellar. Isn't that true? We don't come with great recommendations. We don't come with great uh, uh, backgrounds and pasts necessarily. Most of us come from broken pasts, frustrated pasts. We, we bring our baggage with us into the church. But isn't that what the church is all about? I've said it before, I'll say it again. The church needs to be a refuge for imperfection. You need to write that down. If you, if you don't know that, you write it down. The church must be a refuge for what? Imperfection, huh? Now, if you can't come here, warts and all, and begin to experience the love of God, something's wrong. That's our challenge. It's exciting to me that our past that our problems, that the stuff that we carry with us, these things don't necessarily disqualify us from participation in Jesus' mission. And we see this in the lives of those original 12 disciples. Remember, remember this. Jesus took that first group, didn't he? And he turned them into kingdom champions, did he not? Marvelously. No one was beyond redemption No one of that group certainly was beyond the possibility of life change. You come to Jesus, He he changes your life. He changes your life. It's not a matter of you just be, you come and you get religious. That's not what it's about, is it? You come to Jesus, He says, Come follow me. I'm going to change your life. That offers a great deal of hope for, for people who have no hope. People from the most miserable, depraved backgrounds, they're not beyond the pale of redemption. 
Now, baggage does have to be dealt with, doesn't it? Don't our past and issues and things have to be dealt with? Absolutely. Because a call to discipleship involves renunciation. It requires that we, that we put behind us those past beliefs. It requires we put behind us those attitudes and those behaviors that we have so, so readily accumulated in our life. It's a marvel to me that, that, that people today in our society don't have a clue how to be in relationship. They don't have a clue how to be in relationship. And it's just amazing to me. And you talk about the simplest things. They go, duh, really? <laughs> Absolutely amazing. But it requires that, that people begin to, 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 to renounce and put behind them those old past things. And in time, with that repentance and with the grace of God operating in their life, they experience a tremendous and substantial transformation of their life. How many can tell me and testify to that? How many can personally testify? God has changed my life. It's not a matter of you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's the fact that you committed to Christ. You said, you responded when he said, come follow me. You said, okay, I don't have anything to offer. I don't know why you'd want me, but I'm going to follow. And you found out that he changes your life. Isn't that glorious? But simultaneously, as we put things away, remember when you sweep the house clean, you have to fill it with something, right? And so when you sweep the house clean of the old stuff, beloved, it's important to know that we have to be open to what? New disciplines, new thinking, and new ways of relating, new ways of behavior. So we, we throw out the old and we say, teach me the new. Amen. Fill me with the truth of God through his word. Yes. It's exciting to me that God always begins uh, with people right where they are. He doesn't say, all right, now follow me, but you've got to qualify first. He says, follow me. And then he just begins with you where you are. Shallow character, questionable reputation, negative perspectives. All of us have those, right? All of us have come from those places. See, those things are not a deterrent to following after him, to starting up. He takes us where we are. Beloved, all that is necessary... All that is necessary is the willingness. Is the willingness to lay down that baggage at His feet. That's all that's necessary. Without that willingness, you will not become a true disciple. He says, come follow me. And as we follow Him, then all the stuff of our past, we begin to lay it down. We receive what He has for us. Remember what Jesus' words were in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. He says, come to me, all of you who are what? Weary and burdened. And I will give you what? Rest. He goes on, he says, take my yoke upon you and what? Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble heart. And you will find what? Rest for your souls. So this is a consideration for us, and, and, and you know, we need to understand that. When he says, follow me, you may wonder, you may think, well, why, is, why me? Does, all, does my past disqualify me? No, not at all. 
You don't have to qualify first. You don't have to jump through some hoops first to qualify for being called. Somebody says, well, why? Why does he call? How did he, why did he pick me? We don't know. It's a mystery. There's all sorts of theological explanations, but the bottom line, it's a mystery why he chooses us. All that we know, and we saw this last week, is that it is his pleasure to do so. It's his pleasure. It's his pleasure to choose you. And our backgrounds, whether they be good or whether they be bad, are not the issue. It's what we do, however, it's what we do with the call to follow. That's the issue. That becomes the issue. Are you with me? All right. So that's the first thing we want to consider. Here's the second thing we want to consider. You may think this. When, when Jesus calls, when, when maybe you're in a church setting and there's, there's a, an invitation given to come after Jesus. So you're thinking, why, why me? Okay, we settled that question. Secondly, uh, what's going to be expected of me? <laughs> what's going to be expected of me? What am I getting myself into? We ever think that question? The phrase that Jesus uses... I will make you, he says, fishers of men. That phrase, I will make you, was common for early teachers and certainly rabbis uh, when they invited students into a follow-me kind of relationship. I will make you into this. I will make you into that. We understand the whole principle of apprenticing, don't we? So you find a good candidate. You find someone you think has, a, has an interest, a desire, or whatever the reason. You say, I will make you a thus and such. So it's a common phrase the disciples certainly were used to hearing, or at least had some uh, knowledge of. And basically, it was the commitment of a master to a follower, a teacher to a student. But the commitment also anticipated or expected a disciple who wanted to learn. So when when a teacher says, come follow me, I will make you thus and such... There's an anticipation in the mind of the teacher that this is a pupil, a potential student, who really does want to learn. A person who wants a, a, a new life, a reshaped life, if you will. And certainly, uh, this is true with Jesus. Now, among other things, this assumes a couple of things. One, it assumes submission. The teacher assumes that the student will be submitted. Obedience would not be too strong a word, would it? The teacher would, would expect that the student would obey. The issue of trust also comes into play. A disciple's confidence that the teacher knows the way and is worthy to be followed. So does he know where he's going? And does he have such a character as, as, as worthy to be followed? So these are issues that that you would consider, presumably, as a uh, potential disciple. Boil it all down and you get to the bottom line, and that's teachability. It's really teachability. When a person is teachable, you don't have to waste a lot of time and energy in useless debate and resistance. There's nothing more frustrating to me than to be counseled. Someone comes to me and says, Pastor, would you give me some counsel? Would you give me some advice? Would you help me with my marriage? Would you did, 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 did? I'm assuming that they're coming because they want to know and that they're going to listen and they're going to do what I tell them to do. Now, I'm not going to give them some off-the-wall thing. I'm going to take them right to the manufacturer's handbook. 
and we're going to go step by step, line by line, passage by passage. We're going to show them exactly what the manufacturer's handbook has to say, how you work, and how relationships work. And if you'll follow the directions, uh, things will work. Okay? So I'm assuming that. I don't want to waste my time. I'm a very busy person. I only have so much energy. I don't want to be exhausted on someone who's going to fight me to the nail every inch of the way. Who's going to argue with me. Who's going to resist what I'm telling them. I don't want to have to tiptoe through the truth. The teacher ought to be able to offer insight, ought to be able to offer correction, ought to be able to offer rebuke and opportunity with the assumption that it will be joyfully received. You see? And beloved, I've discovered a scarcity of teachable people today. They are very few and far between. Believe me. Why? Because we live in a culture that encourages thoughtless defiance. Look at our president. Teachable? A role model? And that thoughtless defiance chokes out teachability. People don't want to listen. They don't want to learn. Because we live in this culture that prides itself on its defiant attitude. It's self-seeking, self-serving attitude. Very simply. Wannabe disciples who lack teachable spirits barely make it any further than the invitation. If you don't have a teachable spirit, you can sit in church all your life and you will not make it past the invitation. I promise you. I promise you. It's better that you would not say yes to the invitation until you've examined yourself in this area of teachability. What's going to become of me? What's going to be expected of me? Without the trait of teachability, one cannot be a true disciple. You cannot be a true disciple. Again, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Jesus says, learn from me. Learn from me. So what's the first thing we learned? What's the first thing we've considered? Yeah, why call me? Why, you know, aren't you glad that he calls you despite all of the stuff in your background? Sure. What's the second thing we, we want to consider in following Jesus? Yeah, what's expected of me? What's expected of us? Teachability. Teachability. Here's the third thing we want to consider. What's going to happen to me? (laughs) If I decide to follow Jesus, what's going to happen to me? You know, like so many of us, Jesus' disciples tended to be glued to their past or or only to the present. They were consumed with their past. And and there's many, many people today in the church who are consumed with their past. They continue to live in the past. They continue to regret the past. Or at best, they only live in the present. They have no eye to the future. They have no real sense of hope. Do you know that? What's going to happen to me? 
But Jesus' focus always was on the future. Jesus was forward thinking. Jesus had what I call through vision. He could see through present circumstances. You know, there's an old saying that, that kind of goes like this. If you, this, is, this has to do with relationships and with, with uh, coaching and with raising kids and mentoring and those kinds of things. And it, it's real simple. And it really is biblical. If, and, and it fits with this, 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 this segment here. It kind of goes like this. If you, if you would see me like you want me to be, that's how I'll become. But if you see me only as I am, that's how I'll remain. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? You see, because why? Uh, we, we want someone to challenge us. If the truth be known, you want someone to challenge you. Down deep inside, you want someone to challenge you. You want someone to believe in you. Want, you want to aspire to something great. Even in the midst of your, your chicken little-heartedness. <laughs> True? We want to aspire to something great. And so we're not very much different from Jesus' disciples on that point. Jesus saw every incident, he saw every conversation, and every learning experience in the light of future maturity. Everything he he um, contextualized in terms of future maturity. This is going to work. This is going to work for the future. This is going to work for your good. Doesn't he say, I will work all things together for your good? His rebuke. And he rebuked his disciples, didn't he? His rebuke may have stung for a day or two. But, beloved, it was not meant to humiliate them. It was designed to form character because he knew there were harsh days ahead for them. And they had to be strong and they had to be able to withstand his rebuke. So many of us will will take a a rebuke personally as a humiliation and a put down. And we won't ever grow from it. We won't ever mature from it if we would just let it penetrate and do its work and make us the kind of person that we need to be for the future. When he called them to submission, uh, his, his call to submission was, was directed at breeding leadership sensitivity in them. See, because only a true leader, or you can only be a true leader if you've learned to be submissive. Do you remember when, when Jesus went and, uh, and healed the, uh, the centurion's child? And the, the issue of faith came up. And the centurion said, uh, just speak and my, my child will be healed. I believe that was the centurion, wasn't it? I'm just off the top of my head. His serv- oh, servant, the servant. The servant would be healed. Because he said, I too am a man under submission. I understand submission. You can only lead if you understand submission. So when he called them to submission, that was teaching them, priming them, prepping them for leadership sensitivity themselves one day. If you're Jesus... You don't despair over today's incomplete picture. We lose it. We blow it. Oh, no, it's all gone. They didn't do it. We despair. No, Jesus never despaired. You concentrate on what's coming tomorrow. Jesus will on every occasion bring the picture of their future into clearer focus. He contextualized everything in their life into the future. They were, he was preparing them. He's preparing them. He's preparing them. The picture Jesus has of us, beloved, puts everything on the line. Believe me. 
the picture Jesus has of us, how he sees us in the future, puts everything on the line. Our personality, our character, our habits, our ambitions. In the bottom line, it says that Christ-likeness, Christ-likeness is the issue and the goal. Becoming more like him. That's the issue that he wants us to embrace. That's what he's working towards, is he not? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Jesus will make every effort to reshape us into his likeness, into his image, into godly people. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. This is a lifelong process, isn't it? It's a lifelong process. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's humbling. Sometimes it's exhausting, isn't it? Yes. But rewarding for the one who stays the course. For the one who stays the course. A would-be disciple might want to ask this question, might want to mark this question down. Do I trust his picture more than I trust the one I formed for myself? Do I trust his picture more than the one that I formed for myself? You see, what's, what's going to happen to me? He's going to make me like himself! That's not a shallow question, is it? Beloved, without a hunger for Christ-likeness, without a hunger for Christ-likeness, you cannot become a true disciple. You may start, but unless you are able to answer that question, what's going to become of me, what's going to happen to me, and you embrace the process of becoming like him, you'll, you'll be dead in the water. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus talks about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Does righteousness describe Jesus? Christ-likeness? Those who hunger and thirst, what? They will be filled. They'll be satisfied. Paul tells us over in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that, that God, those God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. So we understand what the process is all about. We understand what the program is all about. We understand what becoming a disciple means. It means becoming like who? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, here's the fourth thing we might want to consider. Here's the fourth thing. Will I be alone in this process? (laughs) Certainly not. Absolutely not. You will not be alone. Jesus, beloved, he is not in the business of developing solo performers. He's not in the business of making Lone Ranger disciples. Jesus was into building a new community called the church. We saw this last week. He creates all things. He created the entire world and universe, the old creation, and he creates new, the church, didn't he? So he's building a brand new community. And this church, this new community, was his, it's his intention that it provide uh, to society a to the dominant culture that's marked by all manner of cruelty, all manner of greed and injustice and exploitation and death and more death, that it provide an alternative. The church is an alternative to society. It's an alternative to society. There was a new community to be established in the original 12 or to be the prototype. What an astounding thought. They were the expeditionary force, if you will. Does a community have a way of life? 
Sure. Does the community have ethics and morals, or should it anyway? <laughs> Disciplines and goals? Yeah, all of those speak of the church. And the community, whether it realizes or not, has something of a covenant relationship. And this is important, especially when you think in terms Yeah, the Bible says that we should live in harmony. We should live in like one big happy family. That's a living Bible translation. We are the family of God, are we not? And a community has a covenant agreement to encourage the best from one another. See, in a family, a family ought to be encouraging the best. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And the family of God should be doing that, shouldn't it? You can do it. It's going to be okay. God's in control. Don't leave him out of the equation. How many times do we leave God out of the equation? We're not going to be alone. Jesus has, he began building this whole idea of community into his disciples from the get-go. Rugged individualism is not something that we find in the church, ought not to find it in the church. It doesn't work in the church. Those original 12, Jesus, when they sent them out, they, he never sent them out alone, did he? He never sent them out alone. They learned to work in pairs. They learned to work in teams. They learned to work in groups. That's what we're all about. We're about community. So when he says, come follow me, and you're thinking, am I going to be alone? No, you're coming to a brand new family. Interdependence was encouraged. Mercy and grace in times of failure and in times of conflict were the order of the day. My, when there's a failure in the family, mercy and grace, isn't that, isn't that the appropriate thing? Not judgment, condemnation. When there's a failure in the church, mercy and grace. No, 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 that doesn't mean that we don't discipline at times. But the discipline is tempered with what? Mercy and grace. Are you with me? And by the time Jesus was done with those 12, uh, they were indeed a community. They were indeed a community. They were ready to offer leadership in the shaping of a considerably larger community as witnessed in the book of Acts. Jesus had accomplished his purpose through them, and he was continuing to do so. Their performance in the book of Acts proved it. A modern disciple must ask him or herself these questions. Here's the first question you've got to ask yourself. Am I prepared to get along with people who are considerably different from me? Am I prepared to get along with people who are considerably different from me? That's a good question, don't you think? We're talking about what? Community. Second question. Am I ready to master the graces of appreciation, encouragement, rebuke, and correction? Am I ready to master the graces of appreciation, encouragement, rebuke, and correction? Here's the third question. I know we're going fast. That's all right. You get the tape. It may be that we... Here's the the third question. Will I be open 
to learning how to forgive, how to repent, and how to submit. Will I be open to learning how to forgive, how to repent, how to submit? See, all these things, all these things are essential part of community, are they not? They're all part of community. And it may be that we're not prepared for discipleship if we're not prepared to learn the lessons, beloved, very simply, in the disciplines of community. If you're not prepared to be in community, you are not prepared to be a disciple. Do you know that? If you're not prepared to be in community, you're not prepared to be a disciple. Because the essence of the kingdom of God is what? Community. That we not be alone. And you know, as you read the epistles, the the letters of Paul, in a number of places, he uses the metaphor of a body. And all the parts of the body, they're interconnected, interdependent, need one another. The eye can't say, I had no need of the foot, and so forth. So we understand this principle. If you're not in community, you're not a disciple. You're going to have a hard time being a disciple. You're going to fall along the way. You need to be in community. You need to be in community. There are no solo disciples in the life Jesus calls us to. Genuine discipleship, in part, is absolutely clearly identified, certified, by the way a man or a woman knows how to connect with brothers and sisters in Christ. How do I know that you're a a disciple? Because I see how you interact with the brothers and sisters, with the family of God. And only then does the world know that we are his disciples, he says. By the love that we show for one another. Without such a community, you can't be a complete disciple. You've got to be in community. You've got to be in community. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be in community. There's no two ways about it. Here's number five. Here's a fifth thing that we need to consider. Four? No, Five. Roseanne, you are such a scrupulous note-taker, too. How could you possibly make that mistake? Oh, she's been looking at your notes. No wonder, Bill. (laughs) Are we on number five now? Or five? This five size five? How many many vote we're on number five? How many vote number four? Okay, let's go with number five. (laughs) Huh? What was it? Oh, okay. All right. Okay. All right. All right. Here's number five. I'm sorry. This is a consideration when he calls us to follow him. Certainly, think about it. If I fail, will I be rejected? How many are concerned about that? How many are concerned about acceptance? How many are concerned about not looking foolish? How many are concerned about not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Roseanne, I know you aren't concerned. (laughs) That's one of the things we treasure about you. I mean, if if you just look at how many times the original disciples fell short of the expectations, that will certainly give you some measure of comfort in this process of being involved with God. Did the disciples fail a lot? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Failure was all over the menu of those original 12. All over the place. But rejection was not. Nowhere does Jesus reject them for their failure. Nowhere. 
If Jesus ever grew discouraged with the twelve, we don't hear about it in the Gospels. We don't hear about it. Now, certainly there were occasions when he was a little miffed with them, (laughs) was upset with them, downright angry with them. But he was not impatient with them. He was not impatient with them. There were some stern warnings that he issued to them, but he never threatened them. You read the Gospels and you see that. You soon begin to realize Jesus knew the hearts of his disciples better than they knew their own hearts. Doesn't he know our heart better than we know it? He knows our motives better than we know them? Absolutely. He recognized what we often do not. That the way to Christian maturity is paved with a thousand mistakes and errors. How do you grow up? By making mistakes. Why? Because I'm imperfect. Is that an excuse? No, it's reality. Excuse me, God isn't done with me yet. Right? Don't we long for people who be patient with us? Gracious with us? And yet firm with us? We don't want people to, to, to play foolishly with us and to, and to give in to our foolishness. We want people to give us direction and strength, discipline us, but at the same time be patient and loving with us. And Jesus indeed was that. Our growth, our maturity is going to come through mistakes. That's why Romans 8.28 is such a rich, rich promise to me. He says, I will work everything together for your good. Even your mistakes, even your errors, even your failures. I'm the only one, God says, who can overrule them, turn around and use them for your good. Redeem them. We tend to write off one another and continue on in our own self-righteousness when we make mistakes. Not so Jesus. He never gave up. He never gave up. Ask yourself, i got four questions. I know I didn't give you enough room in the notes. There's not enough room. I didn't give you more room in the notes. I hear that grumbling out there. (laughs) I'm not impatient. (laughs) Okay, ask yourself these questions. Real simple, real simple. First, am I I prepared to be stretched to the point of inadequacy? That's a question, huh? Am I prepared to be stretched to the point of inadequacy? If the truth be known, most of us aren't. Most of us aren't going to get out there. How are you going to possibly grow if your inadequacy doesn't become visible and you don't make mistakes so that you can learn from them? If you think you're a know-it-all, who's going to play it safe all the time? Here's the second question you want to ask yourself. Am I prepared to play with pain? Am I prepared to pain be a playmate? Yeah, pain. Life is painful. How many people have discovered that? Getting out there can be painful. Here's a third question you want to ask yourself. Am I prepared to seem the fool? Am I prepared to seem the fool? 
Am I willing to let people look at me and say, you are an absolute fool? I resemble that remark. Thank you. (laughs) And the fourth question, fourth question. Am I prepared to get in over my head? Am I prepared to get in over my head? All of these issues are likely, and they all mean, can mean, certainly defeat all along the way, can't they? But you see, it's, it's from those kinds of experiences, beloved, that champions come from. Champions of the kingdom. Jesus got these guys in over their head, didn't he? I mean, he got them out there, so they had to look the part of the fools. He stretched them to the point beyond their inadequacy. And yet they, they turned out to be champions. Seasoned, wise, mature champions of the kingdom. So I want to suggest to you, this is what it all boils down to. Without humility, without humility learned through the failures and errors of your life, you can't be you can't be a true disciple. You've got to have the humility. Again, from Matthew chapter 11, Jesus' words, in describing himself, he says, Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. That's the only place in the Bible, only place that Jesus describes himself. No other place. Humility is critical. Would you agree with me? Number six. Here's a sixth consideration if you are indeed to follow Jesus. You might ask yourself this question. How can I possibly be and do all that's expected of me? When I'm in over my head, it's beyond my ability. How can I be and to do all that's expected of me? You know, of all the things that Jesus did, this is the one thing that seems the most incredible. If you think about it. He took a ragtag group of guys who showed relatively little promise and and he delegated to them the mission of world evangelism. (laughs) He entrusted the world into their hands. (laughs) It just blows my mind. I can't get over that. I mean, you talk about a miracle. That's the most incredible thing he ever did. Now, when you read through the Gospels and you watch the disciples... Most of the time, they feel secure. They feel empowered as long as Jesus is with them, don't they? I mean, everything's under control because Jesus is there. But do you remember the time when Jesus went to sleep in the back of the boat? (laughs) He told them, he says, go to the other side. And he lays down, he's going to take a nap. Now, do you think that they would have confidence? He said, we're going to the other side, that they would get to the other side. A storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee. And Peter says, fear not, men. Don't worry about the storm. We're getting to the other side. Don't wake Jesus. What happens? Ah! They can't get to the back of the boat fast enough. 
wake him up and they say, do something. True. Oh, my. There was another occasion that amused me, just amused me tremendously. It reminds me of me. The disciples are wringing their hands because they're unable to rebuke a demon in the life of a small boy. Remember, a small boy, remember that? Jesus is up on the mount with, uh, with uh, Peter and James and John, right? And then the rest of them are down here, and they're trying to get this demon out of this kid. Finally, Jesus comes down off the mountain. These guys are, we couldn't do it. What's the matter? What happened? And they're just... <laughs> so they turn to him, and they say the same thing. Do something! Now, a marvelous change happens because at the other end of their discipleship journey, Jesus says to them, now you do something. You do something. And with that challenge, with that challenge to do something came also a promise, didn't it? Do you remember the promise? It's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He promised the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will have power and you'll be my witnesses. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. When you say, how can I possibly accomplish this great task? He doesn't mean for you to accomplish it in your own strength. He says, my spirit will fill you, will empower you, will energize you so that you can do what I've asked you to do. Beloved, if this storm-stilling, demon-rebuking, life-changing spirit of Christ was on those disciples, then they're preaching to the crowds on Pentecost, they're healing the sick, and they're bringing the church to the nations would not be an impossibility. They knew and saw the power of Jesus in his own life, and that same power would be present in their life. He promised them, and he promises you and I. So you can step forward. Chris can go on that ship. She can go for two years out of her life. She has no idea what's in store for her. But if she goes in the power of God's spirit, whatever God asks her to do, she will be able to do. Would-be disciples. Today, you and I need to be reminded that our education, our talent, our charisma... They they may be nice things, though they may be helpful things. But without the inner dynamic energy of the Spirit of Jesus working, they are useless, absolutely useless, when it comes to doing work with an eternal purpose, with an eternal end that will last and have an eternal effect. You can do all the things you want with all your gifts and talent and charisma. But if those things aren't empowered by the Holy Spirit... They are gonna, they're going to be just wood, hay, and stubble. They will not have eternal effect. You need the Spirit of God. And without the power and the inner working of the Holy Spirit, without the power and the inner working of the Holy Spirit, you will not be a complete disciple. You will not be a complete disciple. Now here's the last thing. Here's the seventh one that we're going to talk about. And we'll conclude with this. This is, another, this is the last of our considerations. When Jesus says, come follow me, you may have thought this somewhere along the line. What will I risk following Jesus? What will I risk following Jesus? What do I have to give up? Jesus didn't tell, and you read the Gospels, you can see this. Jesus didn't tell the twelve everything at once. 
He didn't reveal to them the deeper teachings on Christ-like growth. He didn't tell them the implications of the worldwide mission that he was sending them on. Not in the beginning. He didn't even talk to them about their ultimate own martyrdom. Well, all of these things along the way in the process of growing them up, all of these things uh, were unfolded to them. And they were unfolded to them in, in direct proportion to the measure of their maturity. That's why the Bible says God will not give you more than you can bear. That's why God doesn't tell you too much about what's going to happen in your future. Barely tells you what's going to happen in five minutes from now, does he? Although most of us are hoping I'll stop talking. Jesus put, beloved, listen, Jesus put no greater burden on them than they were prepared to bear. So we get way out ahead of ourselves. Oh, what am I have to give up? What am I risking? If he told them everything at the start, I suspect they'd all bail right there. If you knew everything at the start, you probably wouldn't have done it. Jesus says, come follow me. If I'd have known what I know now, I'd have been sorely pressed to say yes. He didn't tell me what I'd be going through. He didn't tell me that I'd have gray hair. He didn't tell me that I'd be old and decrepit. He said, come follow me. Where are we going? I'll show you when we get there. And gradually, he begins to unfold his plan and his purpose. But it has, it has a direct bearing on our maturity. Am I going to be mature enough? So it took time. It took time to go from follow me to when he says to Peter in John chapter 21, verse 18 at the end, he says to Peter, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Talking about his death kind of death that Peter will die. He didn't tell Peter that up ahead in the beginning. He said, come follow me. It's at the end of their time. Then he begins to tell Peter what's going to happen to him, what kind of death he's going to die. Better that words like these wait until a person has, some, has done some growing up spiritually. Would you agree? But the answer to the question really was always there for anyone who wanted it. How risky? You will die for me. That's the answer to the question. You'll die for me. And believe me, today around the world, we know disciples of Jesus Christ are dying. They're dying for their faith. They're dying because they're Christians. We spent a whole month, the month of November, praying and remembering the persecuted. Our brothers and sisters, we don't know their names, but around the world, they're dying for their faith. Just because they name Christ. Undergoing severe persecution. What a tragedy. We're not dying here yet. We may one day. We need to plan for that. We need to prepare for that. But if I can, I can say that dying may include other things, indeed, if dying can be expanded to include a career lost for the faith. Some of you have, some of you come face to face with that. You know, you, you're a Christian and and for standing up for your faith, you're, you've lost your job, you've lost your career, you've, you've, you've had to give up something. 
Because they didn't like the fact that you're a Christian. They didn't want you talking out about Jesus. And you would not be silent. Maybe that you've lost income or you have lost friends. I know many of us have lost friends. We've had to kind of die a little bit like that. Or maybe your security is somewhat uncertain because now you've professed Christ. You see, there's some kind of dying. It may not be physical yet here. But we're going to experience some of that in our own life and experience. Beloved, of this we can be sure without a willingness, without a willingness to follow Jesus into death, you will not be a true disciple. You'll be a pretender. You'll be a hypocrites. Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. Jesus says it very succinctly. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's talking about picking up that cross. He's talking about laying our life down. Be willing to suffer for his name's sake. So what are you going to risk? Everything. So what about following Jesus? What about following Jesus? Have you counted the cost really? If you haven't, you get to now. And I urge you with all my heart to do that devotional that I've, I've given you, the daily hope. Do that one this month, this week. Because it will only drive these points home more clearly. Hopefully you understand a little bit more now how to respond to Jesus' invitation when he says, come follow me. What's on the table? What are we dealing with? A willingness to lay your baggage at his feet. Have a teachable spirit. A hunger for Christ-likeness. A community mindset. Humility learned through failure and errors. Being filled with his Holy Spirit. And a willingness to follow him into death. Follow Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the call. Thank you, Lord, for how you instruct us. Thank you for the hope that we have. Lord, that this life that we live, we no longer live in the flesh. Lord, we live by your Spirit. Thank you. Lord, fill us again with your Spirit. Strengthen us for your glory. Help us to understand and embrace all that more clearly what it means to be a disciple of yours. Lord, let none of us be among that number that when you come back, you said, never did I know you. Help us to be people truly who are following you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's praise him one more time before we dismiss.